help us tell stories about living on this earth. Please make your charitable contribution today at LOE.org. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. With all our laptops, smartphones, and televisions, it's sometimes hard to find time to get outside and enjoy nature. But according to Professor Stephen Kellert, since we evolved with nature, connecting to it is essential for human well-being. Stephen Kellert is a professor emeritus of social ecology at Yale University. Along with the eminent biologist E.O. Wilson, Professor Kellert champions the concept of biophilia, the notion that responses to nature are embedded in our genes. So a fear of dogs and spiders and snakes is innate, as is the comfort of a garden and the wonder we feel at a beautiful sunset. In his new book, Birthright, Professor Kellert outlines why nature is a must for humans. Well, really, it's fundamentally about our humanity. It's in our own self-interest, and it contributes in so many ways to our health and well-being. Many of our basic tendencies, our ability to reason, our ability to emotionally connect, our ability to, uh, to avoid things that are harmful to us, and in many other ways, are deeply contingent on our relationship to the non-human environment. We are, after all, a biological animal, and to the extent that we disconnect or separate ourselves from that non-human environment, we do so at our diminishment, if you will, or impoverishment of our physical and, and mental health. Increasingly, where we spend most of our time, we spend 90% of our time on average now indoors, and 82% of us in the United States, at least, live in an urban area. And so that doesn't eliminate our need to affiliate with the natural world for our own self-interest, but it certainly makes it more challenging. And um, we need to think hard about how we design and develop our built environment, and especially our urban built environment, such that our experience of nature can be an integral part of our everyday lives. How important uh, is it that people form a connection to nature in their childhood? The most important period for learning is childhood. And many of our basic characteristics of uh, whether it be our capacity to emotionally bond with others, to intellectually develop, many of these abilities are nurtured and fostered by our relationship to the non-human environment in many, many ways that we barely recognize. Even though most children are not specifically taught different kinds of trees and what's the difference between a robin or and a seagull or a duck or under what conditions does it rain and what conditions does it snow, weather. They nonetheless assimilate this and many more aspects of the natural world that foster and nurture children's uh, uh, physical and mental development. So what does that mean for someone who is raised uh, with a lot of concrete? Even if somebody lives in, in an urban area, they still experience weather, they still see trees, they still see birds, they still see grass, they see soils. And then representationally and symbolically, through pictures, computers, television, and uh, books. Now, I'm not suggesting that it can't be improved and that children are increasingly disconnected from nature, which is a problem, but nonetheless, there is ample opportunity for children even in their urban area to interact and experience nature that's deeply meaningful uh, to them in a developmental sense. Now, employing the thinking of biophilia and what you say it teaches us, what should we change about our healthcare system? Well, there is increasing data that demonstrates that the experience of nature can have a, a therapeutic effect on people, certainly people in healthcare situations who are ill. People have recovered faster and required less uh, potent painkillers when nature is brought into the healthcare environment, whether it be healing gardens and fountains 
pictorial representations and more natural lighting, more natural materials. And so there are ways in which we can incorporate the experience of nature in healthcare settings, and that has happened in a few healthcare settings, and it's happening more as the data demonstrates that it actually improves recovery and treatment. Biophilia can help save money for healthcare? It can. I mean, I'll give you a very, you know, trivial example. It was a study where this emergency room was a windowless environment, had white walls, uh, very sparse uh, furnishings, and there was a, a great deal of aggressive and acting out behavior between people waiting in the emergency room setting as well as between people waiting there and staff. And so they redesigned it at, you know, relatively modest cost. It was still the same windowless environment, but they had a mural of a savanna-like environment with animals and plants. They brought plants in. They brought in natural material uh, furnishings, and they found a dramatic decrease in aggressive and acting out behavior, and that this, in a sense, contributed to the bottom line of that that operational facility because of the um, declining in conflict and stress that occurred in that environment. You have a chapter in your book called Aversion, and it prompts me to ask is, how is fear a basic part of biophilia? Obviously, when we evolved uh, for much of our history, when we lived as a primate that wasn't particularly strong or fast, we were quite vulnerable. So if we didn't have an anxiety and an aversion and a fear of many aspects of the natural world, we'd be in trouble. But even today, you know, that continues to be the case. If we lack fear, we uh, get ourselves in trouble, such as building in floodplains or in uh, earthquake-prone areas. Below sea level, we're vulnerable to hurricanes, which is a a more recent example. So fear continues to be functional, but also fear can be very positive. Awe is a a quality that is defined as fear mingling with reverence. And so fear can be an aspect of having a respect and appreciation for a power that's greater than yourself. Perhaps you could tell us about the encounter you had with wolves. I will. And just to set the stage... I wanted the book to be accessible to a broader audience than just scientists and professionals. So I have throughout the book about 20 plus what I call interludes, which are stories. Some of them are personal stories and others are about other people and other situations, which try to bring these abstractions to life. And this was a story about uh, an experience I had with wolves in the wild. I was involved in a research project. I was with Fred Harrington, who's a, a world expert on the wolf howl. Fred and I departed close to midnight, driving for perhaps an hour down old logging roads through dark, thick, and overhanging evergreen forests. We finally arrived at a heavily wooded area where Fred had successfully called wolves a few weeks before. Fred would periodically play wolf howls, then long intervals of silence would follow as he and I listened intently. Then unexpectedly, from what seemed like a long distance away, I heard a sound so faint that initially I thought it more the product of my imagination. Fred's affirmative nod confirmed that it was a wolf calling in response to the recording. Fred then played the recording more frequently and turned the volume higher. This time, the responses became more audible and frequent. Then a wolf howl suddenly rose without warning from not far away. And then another wolf howled, answered quickly by others. It was clear that the wolves had encircled us, although they remained hidden in the dark woods. The crawls were so loud and startling that my reaction was spontaneous and visceral. What had been a few moments earlier a largely an intellectual engagement had suddenly become deeply anxious, atavistic, and discomforting. I was at the edge of panic, acutely aware of my total exposure. I could not smell or see as well as wolves, and the animal possessed a strength and ferocity and predatory prowess that reduced me, at least in my mind, to little more than edible meat. 
I was hardly comforted by reminding myself that wolves rarely, if ever, attack people. We cautiously backed toward the vehicle, leaving the equipment. To my immense relief, we finally reached the safety of the truck. I peered back at the lengthening shadows of the new dawn and thought I could see the shape of a large wolf. I imagined a fiery glow in his, in his or her eyes, one of curiosity or perhaps hungry disappointment. So how did this feel? I was confused by it because on the one hand, I was embarrassed by my, my fear and my terror of this animal. And on the other hand, I realized that something very deep and meaningful had occurred, that I had come to appreciate and respect this animal in a way that I had never known before because I experienced it on its own terms. And I recognized its extraordinary prowess, its power, and its uh, magnificence. Now, in your book, uh, Birthright, you write that spiritualism forms a fundamental part of biophilia and human well-being. One person here looking at this said, what hope do atheists have with that? We all have a deep and abiding interest in finding meaning and purpose in our lives. I think we all want to believe that we're more than just a meaningless speck of dust at a random moment in time. And I think by having a sense of uh, deep affiliation and connection to the world beyond ourselves and all the organisms that inhabit us, it gives us a sense of relationship, a feeling of uh, meaningful connection. Why did you call your book Birthright? The notion of birthright is... uh, is that we have a a right by nature of our birth to affiliate with the natural world. It's an inherent tendency. But this is not a hardwired instinct. This is something that depends upon learning and experience to become adaptive and functional. And so it's a birthright that needs to be earned. And that was the notion of birthright. It also reflected a a beautiful quote. And this was written by a, a fellow named Henry Beston. And he wrote, nature is a part of our humanity. And without some awareness and experience of that divine mystery, man ceases to be man. When the Pleiades, which is a constellation, and the wind and the grass are no longer a part of the human spirit, a part of very flesh and bone, man becomes, as it were, a cosmic outlaw, having neither the completeness and integrity of the animal nor the birthright of a true humanity. Stephen Kellard is author of the new book, Birthright, and Professor Emeritus of Social Ecology, a senior research scholar at the Yale University School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Thank you so much, Professor Keller. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate the opportunity.